ACNFers. This podcast is brought to you by Casualty of Words, a writing podcast for people in a hurry, hosted by me. It is a short little daily podcast, Monday to Friday right now, just a little about snippets of writing and writing advice or inspiration. And the time it takes you to brush your teeth, you can listen to an episode of Casualty of Words. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And also, since I have a teensy bit more time on my hands, if you leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, for the creative nonfiction podcast, that is, this podcast, I'll give you a complimentary edit of a piece of your writing up to 2,000 words. Once your review posts, usually about 24 hours or so, send me a screenshot of your review to creative nonfiction podcast at gmail.com, and I'll reach back out to get you started. And who knows, if you like the experience, you might even want me to help you out with something more ambitious. I, I always say, I mean, I may have made this analogy to you before, but it's like, I always say I'm like an outdoor cat. Like, I just like can't go in again. Like, I just have seen the outside. I... Hey, CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? Leah Satilli, yes, she's back. Within a calendar year, I know, that's kind of bizarre. But when you have a year like she did last year, it, it's got to happen. What a 2022 she had with the release of her first book, When the Moon Turns to Blood. Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell, and a story of murder, wild faith, and end times. And she released another blockbuster narrative podcast, Burn Wild put out by the BBC, produced with Georgia Cat. They present the story of two fugitive environmentalists, an eco-terrorist, and a burning question. How far is too far to go to save the planet? You might know Leah from Bundyville and Two Minutes Past Nine and myriad long-form features for places like The Atavist, Outside Magazine, and The New York Times. And I highly recommend her Substack. It's free, but she accepts payment to help subsidize the amazing journalism she does. It's sort of like this podcast. It's free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. So go to patreon.com slash cnfpod to pitch in. But her newsletter is wonderful. I look forward to it every time she puts out a missive. It's just like a, you know, I don't know, thousand word essay, maybe a little longer, maybe a little shorter about stuff. I don't know. I dig it. I dig Leah. Okay? Is that so wrong? I can't say enough about her. Her writing, her voicing, her generosity, and her love of journalism, and the power of narrative. She's a damn good potter as well. In fact, I've commissioned her to make me a mug. I wish I had a cool hobby besides getting blotto on IPAs three days a week. But here we are. One last thing. Don't forget to head over to brendanomare.com hey, for show notes and to sign up for my up to 11 Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. Lots of cool stuff. Goodies, raffles, happy hours. First of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, can't beat it. So without further ado, I hate it when people say that. I don't know. Let's, let's, let's just do away with the ado. Here's Leah Riff. Oh man! Oh, I think like as, this is a great way to dovetail into our conversation about you know the 
Burn Wild, the story behind Burn Wild, and 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 so forth. Um, but you said a, a little while ago, like, why do we do this? And maybe I should just ask you, Leah, like, why do we do this? <laughs> oh man, uh, yeah, yeah, you got to start with that question. I mean, <laughs> uh, I I I do I do struggle quite a bit uh, the further I get into my career with um, with why I continue to do it because you know the pay has is not there the jobs are not there like the the sexy glossy magazine gigs are not there like I I do you know it's funny I I recently had a student in one of my classes ask me just so point blank like why write yeah it was in your newsletter yeah yeah okay listen I get it there is some degree of newsletter fatigue going on out there and there's always a little joke around substacks and and the like that said subscribe to leah's substack it's really really good it gives you a really nice insight into what she's thinking about in a given month really nice just a really beautiful essay about just what it means to go about the work and do this kind of stuff i look forward to it every time of course there are paid tiers that you can uh, elect to use to help subsidize some of the amazing journalism that she does, be it podcasts or in print. Uh, And you're going to learn soon enough in this podcast here about Burn Wild, which we'll get to in a moment. But I just really wanted to celebrate her newsletter. It's one of my favorites, and I really hope you'll subscribe to it and mine. Yeah, yeah. And I and I, and it was so it was just so funny the way I just answered it. We were at a bar and I was like, because I feel like I'm helping. And he just kind of cocked his head and looked at me. and was like, who do you feel like you're helping? And I was, you know, I had to really think about it. And I mean, it's for every story. It's different. But, you know, I think it's just like this thing that you figure out from doing it. And there, there are so many stories that I, I am not interested in and that I won't do, but it's like when I do find a story that I know, it's like, I know it when I see it, like I, and then I'm like, I don't even question why I make journalism when I have, when I'm working on a story that I believe in, damn, there are so many barriers to getting there. Like, I can't think of any other career that has so many reasons to not do it, (laughs) I know, (laughs) you know? just hitting you in the face every day like you might not get paid like you might you know this story might get killed or your sources might back out or you're not going to get a job i mean and that is just so dispiriting sometimes but um and some of that is fine when you have like like say a staff gig where the where your salary is is steady and you're like okay if someone pulls out like okay fine I'll move on to the next thing at least I'm still getting paid but when you're doing it as a yes. freelancer it's like god damn it I just wasted all that time and I'm not getting paid for that and uh, now I've, I'm behind on things or it's totally yeah. it's it's funny like yesterday I was thinking about this I did like six hours of interviews yesterday for various, you know, stories I'm working on, things I'm interested in. And I, and I sat down at my computer today and I'm, and I just, I don't know, I had this simple realization of like, oh yeah, if you're a staff writer, you just get paid to do that. But like for me and for you, I got to make sure that those interviews are put to good use and that I get paid for them. And there's just this whole hustle around like, all right, I got to parlay those hours that I spent interviewing and make sure that I get enough. And, um, you know, and t- for me, that has 
meant a progressively higher per word rate and you know for, for projects like i won't agree to them unless they're you know higher in pay and you know there are times where i feel like editors will look you know kind of give me the side eye like are you seriously asking that much and i'm just like yeah, absolutely i am because i've put so much work you know just writing a freelance pitch you've got to put work into interviews for that. And it's like, I got to make my money back here somehow, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you never quite make it all back. I've, I've often, even this past week, you know, this past year, I think I'm like, why don't I just like bartend and write novels? <laughs> you know, hmm. it's like, if I'm not, mm -hmm. if I'm not going to make any money from writing, I might as well do writing that I like find that kind of fun. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like that's, I feel like that's like, uh, I have those thoughts, like, usually very late at night where I'm like, you know, I should just like go work at a bookstore or I should do this other thing. And then like in the morning, I always convince myself like, no, no, I can't, I can't like, I feel like journalism makes it that all my interactions with people are like, tell me your story. And it's like, I feel like I wouldn't be able to just like normally interact with people like checking out their books or pouring a drink for them. I'd want to, I, I need too much, I think from other people. <laughs> Yeah, and it being uh, you know the the end of 2022 as we're talking, and this will come out in the early part of 2023. How do you uh, metabolize the year that was so you can best plan for the year ahead? Hmm, interesting question. I mean, I am always thinking pretty far in advance, so so I'm pretty booked as far as it's you know into the next I don't know probably into the fall. I've, I've pretty much know what I'm going to work on. So I'm kind of thinking past that, mm -hmm. it, it, but I'm, but I'm looking back at like lessons learned 2023 will be my 10th year as a freelancer. And, um, you know, I was just thinking about that this morning, like, whoa, like what I just, uh, it's been a journey and, and I feel like I still continue to learn a lot about, you know, what projects are worth doing, how long things are going to take, you know, where my interests lie, I think those are, those are things that are shifting. You know, there's, there's a way to be a freelancer and I think stay on one beat or there's a way to be a freelancer and just sort of follow your curiosity. And that's kind of how I am. So, so I think that that's kind of what I'm doing looking into the next year is being like, okay, 10 years of freelancing. Like what is the next 10 going to look like for mm. me? Yeah. And you know, what, what are some of those you know, lessons learned that you think will help, you know, make the hopefully make the next 10 years, you know, you know, fruitful and viable and and scratch that 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 itch uh, of your ambition? Um, Boy, I think that some of it is, you know, I've been doing a lot on extremism, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, that's taken the better part of the last seven years or so for me and um I, and i've learned so much i've learned so much about the west i've learned a lot about the people of the west political movements the political divide in america etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. like i think that but my cure i feel my curiosity going in other directions you know i used to do a quite a lot of work based around like injustices, uh, class, you know, class divides and uh, police brutality and religion, culture, you know, subcultures within religion and things like that. So I kind of feel myself going back to those things and, and feeling like I'm, 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 it's not that I'm not interested in extremism. It's just that it's very much the most popular beat in America now. And I'm like, kind of, 
like, okay, I'm then I'm going to go work on other things because this is like covered, I think. <laughs> so I think that's one thing I've learned. I mean, I think, you know, there's also business things you learn along the way that projects take a really long time. You know, Burn Wild, which we'll talk about, is took an excessive amount of time. To, it took too much time. And, you know, that's something that as freelancers, we have to account for and that can be really difficult to know how how to because the story to me it's story is not done until the story's done like i gotta report it it's got to be completely fleshed out there there are things that happen in reporting that you can't account for and i think that's really where freelancers suffer is that like a staff job you know if a story pivots and it gets better or changes you're still going to get a check but for freelancers it's like then you're you're more just stretching a check out so so yeah i think things like that you know accounting for more time on stories and always being more vigilant in my contracts i think that's a thing i continue to learn with each progressive contract <laughs> <laughs> so as we you know you start thinking about uh, you know, burn wild and how it's going to manifest. Yeah. At what point does the, the earth liberation front in the invite uh, eco-terrorism get on your radar as, and, and, and you start to dig, sink your teeth into it? That's a great question. I mean, so I grew up in Oregon and I was a high school student in the nineties and very much aware of the earth liberation front. I mean, I grew up in liberal Portland and, uh, you know, went to a protest when I was like 16 years old, uh, that was like a, a logging protest and things like that. So like, I was just, it was, it's something that's been uh, around for a long time. I was aware that there was this kind of radical group, but like, as a kid, you don't really know what that means, or at least in the kid in the nineties, you didn't know what that meant. So flash forward, you know, much later and i was doing an interview with a former fbi a former FDI, fbi director and i was interviewing him quite a few years ago about far-right extremism and the patriot movement and kind of these circles around the bundy family i was doing reporting for bundyville at the time and um and this i said something i can't remember exactly what my question was but this this person said you know, don't forget about far left extremism. And I kind of looked at him and was like, what do you mean? Like, tell, tell me, tell me what we're talking about here. This is around like 2016 we're talking. And he said, well, you know, like eco-terrorists. And, you know, I kind of logged it away in my mind because I was like, I'm not aware of any major acts of eco-terrorism, but maybe they just slipped past me. You know, I've been focused on the far right. So it was something I really kept in my mind for quite a few years, kind of watching for instances of like eco sabotage, you know, tree spiking, all these things that I, that I'd heard about as as a young person, you know, I didn't see anything. <laughs> so when I kind of finished up uh, two minutes past nine, which was a podcast I did with the BBC about the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, I said to Georgia Cat, who is the producer on Burn Wild as well, you know, I have this idea that I've kind of had in my mind for a while about doing something on eco-terrorism like is that is that real is that actually a thing is that a factor right now how much is law enforcement seeing that and she, and she was really intrigued but what really got her I think was I had told her that you know because this is the kind of person that I am Brendan like I keep an eye on like the FBI's most wanted list <laughs> and like you know things like that and 
you know, ages ago, I had been looking at it and I saw this woman on there, Josephine Sunshine Overacre, and saw that she was connected to some Earth Liberation Front uh, actions in the 1990s in Oregon. And I was like, no way. Wow. Oregon, like the place I've always lived. So I just kind of logged that away in my mind. And there was also a man named Joseph Debay and also connected to the same group with the Earth Liberation Front. And in 2018, he was caught using biometrics flying through Cuba. He'd been missing for like 12 years. So I tell Georgia, you know, I'm really interested in the Earth Liberation Front but they actually caught one of them. And so I think that there's something really interesting there if we could get an interview with this guy. So that's kind of how the whole thing began was me kind of wanting to interrogate this thing that someone very high up in the FBI had said was a problem and understand, is it a problem? But also look at this Oregon connection that I, you know, I had access to in a way that other reporters wouldn't. And uh, not too long ago, you you tweeted how you were able to you know get access and interviews to certain people who had turned down you know very high profile outlets, and you know this this particular podcast really hinged on you getting very privileged access, you know specifically Joe, uh, Joe Debe. So how how have you? Well, how did you you know lobby to get that degree of access that you needed to tell this particular story? Well, I think it's just like a simple matter of not being a helicopter journalist. There were New York Times reporters that tried to do a story on the Earth Liberation Front last year and like Joe DeBay slammed the door in their face. And that was partially because the New York Times had offend like printed wrong information about him in the past that he was very aware of and he told them that. But it was also because he had an agreement with me. And so the reason I got that agreement was because Joe Debay's attorney was somebody that I knew from covering federal court in Oregon. So, you know, he'd gotten calls, his attorney had gotten calls from, you know, every big magazine and, and newspaper around, but he agreed to go with me because he knew my work. He knew my face. I'd interviewed him a ton of times. And so he, so his attorney could say to Joe, look, these people want to make a podcast. This woman has a really good track record and I know her. So I trust her. And, and I think that you're going to probably get the best shake um, from her. So, you know, that, that's pretty amazing. Like, when does that ever happen to a freelancer? <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know, yeah. it's just from being there. Yeah. Showing my face. And now, so as you start to get access to principal figures, at what point do you start to, you know, start the reporting and then kind of see how the story might play out? Like if you were to storyboard. It was interesting because I knew early on that I was going to work on it with Georgia and uh, we had a conversation about it. She has an excellent podcast that she does. It's called The Missing Crypto Queen. It's about this woman who's also on the FBI's most wanted list, it turns out, um, who is, you know, a crypto guru and is missing and, you know, swindled people out of millions of dollars. And and, and the podcast is really her and, and the host kind of traipsing around the world, actually literally trying to find this woman. And so we had an early conversation about, could we apply that same sort of narrative model to Josephine Sunshine Overacre? And pretty quickly, we were like, that is not possible because she has been missing for so long and the FBI has no idea where she is. There's no way in hell we're going to find her. Whereas, you know, with the missing crypto queen, there's she's much more recently disappeared so so we kind of scrapped that model and it became about well let's focus on joe because joe debay has said he would do interviews with us 
you know, let's just really, really embed with him. And Georgia gave me a lot of space to do my interview style, which is, you know, we're going to have a few, we're going to have quite a few conversations. These conversations are going to be hours long. And we just started getting to know him and trying to understand, you know, what the movement looked like in retrospect through his eyes. You know, he'd lived in Russia. He'd lived in Syria. He'd been through the Syrian war. He'd, you know, had so much happen in his life that it really made us wonder, you know, did he have feelings of regret about the things that he took part in, you know? So, so that was kind of the beginning. Um, and also I should say, you know, it, it took a long time for Joe to even admit to us that he did what he did. Um, and, uh, that might be a little bit of a spoiler. Sorry about that. But so, yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of how the reporting started to take shape was, okay, we started with Joe. We just started really organically. Then he would tell us some things. We go do some phone calls with other people, with other experts involved in extremism, with people in the environmental movement. And then at a certain point, it's like the reporting just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because we had the American side of things. So we were like, you know, Joe is one person. How, who else could we get from the Earth Liberation Front that's maybe willing to talk? So we got Chelsea Gerlach, who had not spoken about what had happened, you know, with the Earth Liberation Front and her time in prison. And then we got Daniel McGowan, who actually is the subject of an excellent documentary called When a Tree Falls. And, you know, he was a little reluctant uh, because I think you know, that movie is really kind of, I think, the end-all be-all of his story. But, you know, he was intrigued that here was the BBC calling and wanting to put a little bit more of a global perspective on it, but also revisit it after so much, these events after so much time. So we built all the reporting around the American movement, and then we started kind of looking wider, you know, at uh, Extinction Rebellion in the UK, at just stop oil, um, you know, all these different kind of movements that have really, really been taking hold in the UK and just asking bigger and bigger questions because we realized that this, like the reason to do this story in this moment is obviously this pressing threat of climate change. Well, that's not an Oregon problem. You know, that doesn't, that's not restricted to the forests of Oregon. Like, you know, the conversation was in the 1990s. So, you know, it's a global problem. And so we kind of had this, mantra that we really repeat over and over again through the podcast of like how far is too far to go to to save the planet and that was really born out of the reporting of just talking to people about what they did and how they feel about it and them all being really reflective of like you know i i served hard prison time it was horrible it it ruined my life what i did but also, I don't think I was totally wrong for doing it because look at the state that we're in right now with, with climate change. So so that's kind of how it all started to kind of come together was like these puzzle pieces sort of slowly uh, falling into place. Now, when you say that you know, the reporting was getting like bigger and bigger and bigger, how do you know you and, and Georgia you know, keep your wrap your heads around it and organize it you know, because it is like there are puzzle pieces and they're all over the place. And you don't know when one might fit, one might not fit, you know? So how are you keeping your head around everything as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, it's part of the reason I think that it took so long for us to make this was it wasn't just the story of one person 
you know, it could have been just about Joe, but it's like, you can't really tell the story fully if you're just focusing on one person. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of became like this, uh, we had a pretty scattershot method. I will say, you know, it's a lot different than doing your reporting all on your own and you can kind of use your own systems. Like we had a really big challenge in that, you know, we're pretty different reporters and we also live eight hours <laughs> apart from each other. So like, you know, for a while, I would say the reporting was a little all over the place. It's like we had, you know, some of Joe, we had some of Chelsea, we had some of Daniel, we had a bunch of stuff about, you know, uh, just environmentalism over a 30 year period and, you know, so much stuff. But I think what really was the, the thing that made us kind of click into place is that when COVID restrictions lifted, Georgia was able to fly into the U.S. for the first time. So she came to Oregon for two weeks and we basically spent that entire two weeks, like 10 plus hours a day together, like reporting, driving around, writing, like kind of figuring out like how this is going to all come together into a narrative. So, I mean, it, it is kind of funny because it's like, if there was something about it just being physically in the same place, um, I think was one thing, but you know, it, it, podcast narratives, I think are, it's a, it's a real kind of, it can be hard, but I think that what we really hung it on was Oregon and the ELF. So like throughout the series, you, you kind of get these snippets of like rural Oregon or Eugene, obviously we have a whole episode devoted to Eugene and like, I think that those things allowed us to kind of put a little bit of boundaries on the reporting, like, okay, you know, we need to get to Eugene and we need to talk about why Eugene is important, but why what happened in Eugene ripples out across the world and stuff. So it was kind of, it was kind of that, you know, putting these sort of Oregon colored glasses on and then just seeing everything through that. And when you're start reporting too, at what point do you start to think about the structure of how you want to organize the entire scope of the story. So we knew that people needed a character to follow for this to be interesting. Like we couldn't be talking about people and unless their voices were being heard. So we really, I think when we got the interviews with Joe and then got interviews with Chelsea and Daniel, we knew that there would be sort of this like triple character braid kind of throughout the podcast. So you could kind of follow their stories. Um, so I think that that, and then we built around that. Well, you know, where was there a common place that, you know, Chelsea and Daniel both lived, but also several people lived. Okay. Eugene, the government accused both Chelsea and Daniel of having to do with a fire at a tree farm out in Klatskanai, Oregon. So it's like, okay, well, we got to go to Klatskanai. So they kind of became these sort of, uh, the narrative was sort of formed around the people and the places and everything else kind of filled in from there. Cause that's what I would want to listen to in a podcast is I want to hear voices. I want to get those like textural elements, you know, of, of in the woods and, and that kind of thing. So we, so we knew, and we really knew that we wanted to create a podcast that was like, had a lot of nature sounds and like birds and snow and, trees and wind and things like that so it was like we had this sort of palette of of people places and sounds and we thought like how do we write to that and you know to me I feel like I'm such like an artist about writing that was like a great challenge for me was like 
okay, like, so make it narrative now. Like, how do, how do we do that? That probably doesn't make any sense, but it does to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, because of the, the soundscape and everything you were able to accomplish, it did strike me as a very like immersive experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was, the, that was the intent is that we really wanted it to feel, you know, Georgia and I both are pretty voracious listeners to podcasts and neither of us could think of one that had largely like a, a, a soundtrack of, of, of nature, you know, and we thought, you know, these are the things that'll be lost by climate change are, are, are bird sounds and trees and, and things like that. It'll, it'll, we also have this sort of landscape of fire sounds that go throughout. And so we were kind of trying to tell a little bit of a story there of like, you know, fire interacting with nature and, and birds in trees and, and that vacant space when they're gone and stuff. So um, we, we, we did, we did know, you know, we had a lot of, we put a lot of expectations on this podcast as far as like getting interviews people couldn't get, getting access where other people had had trouble, um, doing things with the music and the story. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it, it was a great challenge. And, and I think it, it, it tired us both out though, because it was like, we, <laughs> we both put a lot, we put our whole lives into it. So, you know, when something like that is done, you're just like, boy, I mean, you and I have been talking about this. You're just like, God, I don't know if I can do that again. Right. Well, you were talking about like how, how long it, it took you guys in terms of the reporting. And of course there's the writing and the editing and everything that goes along with producing it. And like, in the end, you're dealing with like, you know, basically right around eight hours of, of content that can be literally listened to in a day. And you're like, mm-hmm. you spent like over a year if not like about two years working on this so it's got to be like it's just like all that work for like what amounts to very little end product in terms of it's just like oh my god (laughs) yeah it's wild I mean like the the I can't even tell you how many hours and hours of interviews we just have with just Joe Debay, you know and we have hours of interviews with people that didn't even go in the podcast like um so but that's what that's what reporting is and i think that this is where the podcast medium is so tricky business wise is that you know podcast companies want to make sure that they've got a sure bet with the story that you're telling but you know good journalism happens from figuring it out and and that was one thing the bbc really allowed georgia and i to do is they give us a lot of space to figure it out on our own and um, go where the story needed to go. And, you know, they weren't going to force us to go, like I said, traipse around the world and trying to find a a fugitive that the FBI can't find. Like they, they wanted to make sure that we were telling the right story that needed to be told in this moment to advance the conversation beyond the kind of true crime narrative and, and look at the bigger takeaways. So, um, so yeah, I mean, but that that just takes a really long time. Then you know, do it, it with an eight-hour time difference. Right. <laughs> so there were times where Georgia was staying up until three in the morning to do interviews. Um, there were times that uh, you know I was waking up at five in the morning so we could talk on the phone before a bunch of interviews that we needed to do in the morning and stuff. So it became this sort of like really, really rigorous process, you know, and and it was like a daily call that we had to have to kind of say, all right, what do we need next? What do we got? Like, where are we going? And both of us are living, you know, mostly in COVID for this. And so we'd like kind of lament to each other, like, 
maybe the BBC should like pay you to come live in Oregon or or maybe the BBC would like pay for me to come live in London for a little bit so we can just sit in the same room and figure this damn thing out. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it that didn't happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there there was a at one point, yeah, it's been a while since I listened to it, but there was a hat tip where you're like you would be drinking your morning coffee and she would be on her glass of wine. And it's like yeah. that's um it's like a, it's a really kind of like cute storytelling choice to like put to put in because you're like it 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 shows like how you guys are on different parts of the planet trying to work on this thing um it's one of those things too that it doesn't necessarily advance the narrative but it is nice color so like uh, Mm -hmm. i wonder just even for a small decision like that you know why you elect to include some 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 people be like yeah that's really cool and i think it's really funny and it gave you guys a little snippet of your personality and some people will be like no take it out because it, what does it really serve in your global warming piece yeah. so i don't know just a- totally yeah i think that there was um it was important you know it was the second project that georgia and i had worked on together and we sort of established it, it, it's this very unique thing that to to my life i don't know if any this has happened with anybody else but it became this really reliable working friendship that I had that was born in COVID. Like for the majority of the time that I've known Georgia, it has been through a Zoom screen and we just became a big part of each other's lives because work became so big during COVID. We were all at home working all the time. Well, it just so happened I was working with somebody who lives halfway around the planet. So I think that there was a bit of anticipation in the first time that we would meet each other and, um, you know, see and, and, and talk. But I will say that when we both heard the Trojan Horse Affair, which was the serial podcast uh, made by Brian Reed and um, can't remember the UK journalist's name. See, isn't this the beauty about these little asides, these little interjections, uh, the journalist that. Leah is referring to, and I, I will likely butcher the pronunciation, but uh, the journalist's name is Hamza Syed. Trojan horse affair. But they um, they were doing a similar thing, and we heard that and thought, wasn't that interesting? Like that they worked in this sort of goofy, good cop bad cop relationship um, between this American and British reporter. And we talked a lot about what what use that had to that narrative. You know, um, I don't know if you've heard that podcast, but it's it's a big part of the podcast. It's a big part of them realizing what the story is. And so we started, you know, it was we'd already been recording our phone calls at that point. Um, It just was something that we did early on in our process. But we thought, you know, maybe it's more interesting to for people to hear two female reporters who are writing about extremism which is a you know pretty risky beat and um and seeing what that looks like through through our lens maybe that will be more interesting for people you know or 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 interesting in the same ways that the trojan horse affair was so there was a bit of inspiration there in, in trying to um to kind of capture that and uh and I don't know. Somehow I've become a character in a lot of the the project, the audio projects I've done, and I think it's just that I have a pretty off the cuff style, and 
And Georgia really kind of liked that. And so I think I was like, well, I'm not going to be the only character in this thing. Like you're coming in with me then because <laughs> we've worked on this together. It's truly half and half. So um, so <laughs> that's some of the logic behind it. Yeah, there was a moment too where like it was like you had seen each other for the first time off a Zoom screen. And she, she came up to you. She's like, wow, you're like, you're tall. <laughs> like, yeah, we were both struck. I mean, I, I am like 5'10". So I usually am like the tallest woman in, in most rooms that I'm in and and it was just so funny. That was the first thing we both noticed is that we were the exact same height. And I, we had, you know, we hadn't asked each other, you know, how tall are you? <laughs> so it was really funny. Now, a, a key component of, you know, a huge component of the whole of the whole series is this idea of labeling the perpetrators of the eco-terrorism as like stone cold terrorists and this this really plays pivotal roles in how long they're put away even though the their acts of violence didn't kill any any person or really any animal so i don't know, does, speak to that and the importance of that and as that bubbled up to the surface in the story that you were telling well i think it's born out of that initial conversation i had with the person that was formerly in the fbi you know don't forget about eco terrorists and um, I think that what we started to realize is that, you know, the FBI deeply, deeply wanted to get Joe DeBay, and they still very much want to get Josephine Sunshine Overacre. I mean, we have that FBI agent in the podcast saying, like, I don't want to retire until I get her. Like, that would be a, the cap on my career is to find this person. So that was struck me because we have seen so many acts of domestic terrorism in the past few years. When Georgia and I were working on two minutes past nine, January 6th happened. You know, we recorded in real time our reflections on that. And that was a part of that podcast was that looking at the 25 year on legacy of the Oklahoma City bombing, then January 6th happens as we're making that podcast. Like it felt very much hand in hand with the legacy of Oklahoma City. So so our focus had been seeing, you know, all these acts of, you know, domestic terror, January 6th, the takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, the standoff at Bundy Ranch. Like there's been so many things that have happened that have been armed takeovers. People have lost their lives. You know, police officers lost their lives at January 6th. But then we also were getting into the um, history of, white supremacist motivated mass shootings. So like in El Paso, Texas, and in Buffalo, and in, you know, Charleston at the church with Dylan Roof, like, and what we started to see was that around January 6th, there was a lot of talk about that not being terrorism. This is, this is something we're still talking about today that the El Paso shooter still has not been charged with terrorism, that the Buffalo shooter, there was debate whether or not he would be charged with terrorism. These were people who committed their acts of violence because of their expressed racially motivated ideology. So we wanted to talk about how does that square up with a bunch of people who burn some buildings down? We're not saying that that's not a crime but should it be called terrorism so 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 much of our reporting became about trying to understand how the word terrorism gets applied by the department of justice by the fbi by police and by the public 
And at a certain point, we realized that the term eco-terrorism had, by many accounts, been purchased by industry, by very powerful lobbyists who said, you know, this is, this is a, these, these acts are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're hurting our business and politicians heard that. And that was something that we heard in our reporting quite a lot with people who'd worked in Homeland Security, with people who worked on this case in the FBI, who said there was political pressure to get these people. And, um, you know, that was a point of, obviously of curiosity for Georgia and I, but at a certain point, particularly for me, it became a very big point of anger because, you know, I've been working on stories of far-right extremism for a long time and have seen, you know, not as many consequences as one might think. And then to look at, at sort of what had happened with the Earth Liberation Front, it was, um, it just, there was a big disparity there. So, so yeah, that, I mean, that really ends up being the focus of the podcast. It's like, what is terrorism? What is terrorism um, in the mind of, of the law, but also in the mind of the public in this kind of post 9-11 world? Like, what does that look like? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a fascinating thought experiment. And you're someone who is, you know, I would say the, your body of work obviously is primarily written and, you know, print-based, web-based. Uh, so when you're mm -hmm. doing narrative audio, how does your writing change, especially as you look to integrate the quotes, which are literal tape? It's a great question. It's been something that has been probably one of the funnest challenges for me is to try to, you know, typically... I mean, not only, like you said, is my body of work written, but it's like long written stories, like 10,000 word stories. And when I made Bundyville, I had really, really good teachers in the producers of that podcast who kind of taught me how to write for radio, which was not a thing that I knew how to do. And what I learned is it's like, you've got to, you've got to be able to talk. You've got, you've got to write like you talk. But you also have to be able to explain complex issues to people conversationally while also not talking down to them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit of like this kind of like, it's a real like, all right, now try to boil down your story that you would typically write 10,000 words to a, you know, two minute bit in it, it, it. So it's, it's, it's very difficult, but, um, but to me, I think that that's like, it's, it's a it's a really good challenge. I think it makes you a better writer. You know, I used to work for an alt weekly back in the day and they'd be like, okay, we're going to put out our like best, best of the city issue. And you have to write about the best barista and the best laundromat and the best like, you know, bartender and stuff. And you've got 50 words. I always thought of that as like a really fun writing experiment is like, you got to write something punchy in 50 words. And, and I think that like, that's kind of a little bit of what podcasting feels like to me is like trying to, you know, not change the meaning of it, not, not overly like sexify something, but like, just talk to people like it, it, you're like, you're at their kitchen table. You just tell them the story. And, um, yeah, I, I find that very fun, very frustrating, but very fun. Yeah, and also just logistically, when you're working in print, it you know, and you, if you have to like move a quote around or even like you know massage out some of like the verbal ticks or whatever, you know, that's really easy. And if you need to be like, oh, this makes more sense higher in the story or lower in the story, it's it's an easy cut and paste. With audio, mm -hmm. it's 
much more complicated. And I'm not even a super mm-hmm. duper producer. I've done a little audio storytelling where I have to do clip audio here and there. And it's a pain in the ass. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very hard because there are a lot of moving parts. Like literally, you got to be really delicate with how you move around the audio. So what was, you know, yeah. what, what was that process like for you since your episodes contain so much tape, so much narration, mm-hmm. and it's a, a lot of a lot of strips across your your DAW? <laughs> Before we let Leah even answer that question, let me explain what a DAW or D-A-W is. It's a digital audio workstation. My DAW is Hindenburg. Some people use Pro Tools. Other people use Audacity. So that is what a DAW is. It's basically Microsoft Word or a Google Doc for your audio story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it it's interesting because... The process of writing uh, Bundyville and Two Minutes Past Nine were very different than writing Burn Wild. So with those podcasts, it was like, okay, what's the story we're telling? And I would kind of go through and write the script and think, okay, this quote would be good here. This good quote would be good there. And, And it was pretty straightforward. It was almost like writing a story. But with Burn Wild, actually, Georgia took the first pass at the scripts in that she would roughly say, I think that this is the flow of the audio that's going to make the most sense. So now build a story around that. And, um, you know, obviously this is after we knew, okay, the you know, third episode is going to be about Josephine Sunshine Overacre. Fourth episode is going to be about X, Y, Z. So, um, but that was kind of the process was it was, it was reversed, you know, it, it didn't quite make sense to me the way we were doing it that way, but in the end it did because, like you say, it's like you kind of, there's a part of me that thinks that you can kind of hear the story if you took out all the, narr- if you took out all of my narration and you only heard the quotes, you would hear the story, same story that we're telling. So, um, so it's about filling in those gaps usefully and in a way that supplements what our sources had already been telling us. Yeah. And then there's, you know, you, you've talked about you've talked about Sunshine, and you know you introduced her early in the run. And I remember when, like, usually when a name gets introduced, you're like, okay, that's going to matter. And and because she's been on the lamb for so long, you're like, maybe in this story, like, they're going to find her. And <laughs> and you know, it's just one of those things. I'm like, all right, are they going to or are they not? And you know, spoiler alert, she's still on the lamb. You don't you don't find her. Um, so yeah. so for you, when you d- make the decision to put her in as something of a MacGuffin and, you know, she's not found in the end. So there isn't that like nice clean payoff of like, here's this thing that came up and like, Oh, we're going to find her in the end. So like, how did you like kind of navigate around that knowing that you weren't, that you didn't find her, but still make it satisfying like sort of arc to your story, even though she doesn't factor in, in the way that would be like a neat little bow. Yeah. Well, I think that there was a few things. We did want people to think there was a chance that we might find her because we were certainly wanted to leave ourselves open to that possibility. Um, I, I do remember a, a journalist friend of mine halfway through the series coming out. She was like, oh, you're going to find her. I know it. I know it. Like, <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, no, people think we're going to find her. Like, is that wrong? But, you know, 
but here's the thing. I also have a lot of experience writing about people that I have not talked to. So like, you know, quite a few years ago, I wrote a profile for outside about the last man standing at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge occupation. And, you know, that story was assembled from phone calls uh, that he'd made to the FBI, my interviews with his family. You know, I wrote a bunch of for Rolling Stone about a politician that I just couldn't get any access to, but there was a ton on the public record about him. So, you know, when it became clear to Georgia and I that there was no way in hell we were going to find sunshine, that's kind of what I said to her. It's like, look, just because we can't get an interview with this lady does not mean we can't write about her because certainly people have, but I think that we can apply my expertise of extremism to her story and then, you know, talk, try and talk to people about her, try and understand as much as we humanly can about her. And I think that we'll be able to tell a different story. So, um, and then, you know, just being the kind of reporter I am, I mean, I was like pulling up high school yearbooks. I'm like pulling out all the stops and everything I could possibly think of, of like what might contribute to our knowledge of who this person was. Because anything that's ever been written about her starts and ends with those arsons. And I'm like, but she was a person before that happened. You know, she was in her 20s. So who was she? Where was she from? What kind of family was she from? Where'd she go to high school? You know, what, what was her best friend's name? Um, what'd she like to do with her time? And there's just still so many questions that I feel like I had about her that it became kind of an exercise in trying to like almost write a profile of her um, without ever having talked to her. And then obviously we got an interview in the end that made that secure for Georgia, for Georgia and I. I mean, and that interview really like did come chronologically detail tail 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 end of our process like the ending would have been completely different had we not um gotten that interview yeah i was i'm always curious when in over the course of be it a magazine story or in the case of a podcast of this nature when certain repertorial bits came in the course of the process like you know did you when you're having i was having this conversation with michael shulman who wrote a really nice profile on James Corden a while ago and there was like a closing mm-hmm. quote and I was just like it's such a great closing quote and I asked him like did that come at like the end of your reporting like or is that something he said in the first five minutes you were talking and you're huh. like kind of like earmark it like oh that has this the the resonance of an ending and you put it in your pocket for the ending <laughs> and it, it sounds like you know probably that email you got from sometimes mother it, it sounded like it came late in the process and I guess I imagine that that throws a complete wrench into the entire arc of <laughs> of your story. Well, I mean, so, so really, you know, as people hear what happens in Burn Wild, that's the chronology that it happened okay, in. Okay. And, and, and so much is it for us was knowing, you know, like you asked earlier about our relationship is, is included in the story, but also kind of our thought processes as we're trying to kind of untangle these knots. It was like untangling a big, you know, gnarl of Christmas lights. <laughs> like, you know, how do we make these things like, how do we straighten this whole thing out? So yes, ha- about halfway through the process, I had been hunting just about as hard as I could for for Sunshine's mom and I and I felt like I had found her and I'd been asking every person I could possibly think of about Sunshine and you know to this day I still don't know who told her that I was looking for her but um she she signed up for my newsletter for my Substack newsletter I got this 
you know, I saw, so I got a sign up and it, it's weird. Cause I don't usually read like all the, the sign up, you know, the emails that I get, somebody signed up for your newsletter, but for whatever reason on that day I did. And I was like, you know, first and last name, uh, I, you know, I don't want to give away her email address, but I was just like, no way. And I just sent the email. Like, usually I would ask Georgia, like, Hey, I got this email. Do you think I should, but I just sent an email and was like, call me crazy here, but are you Overacre's mom? And she wrote back and was like, yeah, I am. But that happened about a year, a year and a couple of months before we actually got an interview with her. So, you know, much of that year was me talking to her on the phone and saying like, here's what I'm trying to do, you know, and, and kind of gaining her, trust but also just telling her about what we were working on I mean I think she, she's you know I've written a lot in the past about missing persons and I have a deep awareness of the trauma that that creates in families who don't know if their family members are alive or if they're missing or, or if they are in need of help and so I realized pretty quickly that was kind of what I was dealing with with, with Sunshine's mom was like this is a woman who who lost her daughter and she has no idea if she's alive. And, um, you know, really this is like a re-traumatizing thing for her. And at a certain point she said she didn't want to do an interview and I left her alone for quite a while. And then, you know, towards the end, we were kind of finishing up the, the project and Georgia and I were like, you know, she's, she's pretty cool. Like maybe we could ask her one more time. And, and, we went around and around on if that was ethical or if we were really going to be bugging this lady and, and we landed on asking her and, and that was, that was the thing. She agreed. She was like, yeah, you're right. I do want to talk about this. I, I do want to be a part of your project. So it was just one of those things that made us really happy that we had included so much of the sausage being made process, because I think that the, the listener then is like, well, you didn't find sunshine, but you found, found just about as close as you could get to her. And that's, I think, kind of satisfying to hear from her. Yeah. And I believe you basically give her the final word in the entire series too. Is that mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because what we realized is like these questions that we were asking they're questions that apply to protest movements. You know, they apply to, you know, all of a sudden Roe v. Wade kind of takes this big seat at the end of our of our project about environmental activism. And that's because, you know, I think part of Elspeth and I's conversations was us sharing frustration, you know, not journalist to subject, but but woman to woman about what was happening in the United States. And 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 I shared with her my frustration about Roe and 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 she was like, you know, that kind of has actually something to do with this kind of greater story that you're trying to tell here. You know, it's about this is reminiscent of the of the Vietnam War protests that I participated in and the reproductive rights protests that I participated in. And 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 Sunshine comes from that legacy of of people pushing back against power. And Georgia and I just realized, like, there's nothing we could say that would be better than that, that would be have more weight. Um and I think that that was effective, you know, I mean, I think that we've heard from a lot of different types of people who heard the project and a lot of people who started out hearing the series and saying, these people are arsonists and they're terrorists. And those same people at the end of the series would be like, wow, much more complicated than I realized. And, you know, they could share in Elspeth's 
pride, I think, of, of, of her daughter. And when you're out reporting with, for, for you know, radio or podcasting, it's, it's a slightly different uh, hardware situation. And I'm always amazed that, like, or, or not amazed, but, like, I'm always like, when do they hit record? Because oftentimes it's like <laughs> you're catching a lot of things and you're catching, like, people approaching to, approaching you from afar. I'm like, all right, I like – I think Jonathan Goldstein for heavyweight, he he has a thing. He's like, always be recording. So, like, I think for mm-hmm. him, like, if he's right even before he knocks on someone's door, he's got his recorder on. And I, and is that the fundamental thing? It's just, like, you, you got to turn that on. Your battery, your memory card's empty. Your batteries are full. Turn that shit on. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Like, I, I think that, you know, I, I have this sort of luxury that I always get to pretty much always get to work with a producer on the podcast that I work on, you know, and I think that I would say on Bundyville, Ryan Haas was generally recording about 20 minutes before we got somewhere he would want to, okay, let's start talking about what we're going to be doing, you know, let's start getting that audio. Um I will say that Georgia cat starts recording about an hour before. I mean, so it's like, she has a much different technique of like capturing. um, I mean, it's really cool to see the way that she works like this, you know, she's the kind of person that's going to have a mic, you know, to the wheel of the car and be like, okay, back up. You know, it's like, she's the kind of person that would you like go to the sort of nth degree to capture sound of the interviews of the um uh you know the atmospheric kind of ambient sounds of conversations and stuff i mean i bet that she has on some sort of like probably half broken bbc computer probably hundreds of hours (laughs) of audio for that reason but it gives her a very big wide palette to work with and as the story comes to a close and you put a bow on your final episodes you know there comes the moment too of the sort of the post-publication gauntlet of having to promote the thing getting in front of people you know this is kind of a a part of the process i think people sometimes are uncomfortable with or they don't really talk about very much so i know for you who uh you know what is you know this moment like when you're you've published it and now it's like okay we need to get this out into the world yeah i mean it's been different for every project that i've worked on you know books articles podcasts and i would say that for this one weirdly it is slightly low impact on me because we have to remember this is being put out by the BBC. Mm-hmm. So the most, for the most part, it is being promoted where the BBC broadcast, which is, you know, half of the world, but not as much here in the United States. So there's a lot of interviews that Georgia does. There's a lot of, um, you know, promotion over, over on that side of the world. Um, but, but less so over here, which, you know, I've done I've done quite a few interviews, of course, and like you know promotion and things like that. But it is um, it is kind of a, a little bit of a slow burn of of a promotion effort. It's not quite the blitz that um, that I've experienced with other things. And I have to say, I'm a little bit happy with that because I think both of us were so tired <laughs> when it was done. So, but we also know it has a long tail. Like this is relevant for for as long you know as for as long as people are going to use the term eco-terrorist for as long as climate change is an issue this is going to be relevant so um we tried to create something that that would be timely and not you know have a quick expiration date on it and just a couple more things leah and you know just as you know as you wind up the project something that took so much time and bandwidth 
and you know it's finally out there's what's the the level of like sort of enthusiasm or energy you have to like to start anew for the for the next project given how much time you know something of this you know takes from you and drain and drains you you know does it leave you full or more drained drained i mean energy uh, yeah not a lot like I um I don't know how quick I would be to run to make another podcast and that's just simply because they are a ton of work you know we would often sort of say that you know I, I put out a book last June and I wrote that book faster than we made burn wild mm -hmm. and I think that you know that's a 320 page book like um, and that's just, it's, it's because of, I think some of the hurdles we were dealing with COVID eight hour time difference, you know, literally working around the world from each other, you know, there was a, a lot there, but we were also following Joe Debe's case and that was playing out in the court. So we basically created the most complicated reporting experience we could for ourselves. And I think that that's really satisfying in the end, but like you say, you know, somebody can binge it in a day. Yeah. So I think, I think that that's, you know, um, the payoff of podcasts can be, um, can be kind of, kind of small, you know, and it like, you know, the first question you asked me is like, why do we do this? And I think that, you know, with each project I take on, I have to think about afterwards, like, what was the, what was the, uh, you know, how effective was that? Um, in a way, I think that Burn Wild is insanely effective. I think it's prompted conversations that people didn't realize we needed to have. We wanted to create a podcast about climate change that was less about ice caps melting. I don't, I don't mean to sound like, you know, crude or anything but like less about wildlife dying and more about like how people are, are going to handle this and if they are and how um what happens when people take things into their own hands so yeah i think that you know we created the project that we wanted to but i think that you know the podcast industry is just so topsy-turvy in terms of like there are people that get paid millions of dollars to work on shows. And then there are people who pay for their shows out of their own pocket. And, and there's not a whole lot in between. And so I'm trying to figure out like, you know, I like to podcast. I do, I do think that audio is a very rich medium for storytelling and it's very powerful. Um, but you know, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't be paying for it by myself. And, and, and that's, a tough choice to maybe have to make, but you know, I'm also pretty tired from burn wild. Yeah, absolutely. But it was, it was such a, a satisfying experience. And I, I yeah. And I think the Duffer brothers, the stranger things guys, like that's something they've lamented too. It's like they spend so long putting these seasons together and then like people watch it in a day and they're like, God damn. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like, what a compliment, but also safer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think they, they, they long for the day of like the week to week thing where you can watch it and then digest it and talk about it instead of just the, you know, this total binge culture, which uh, sometimes I think does a disservice to the, just the Titanic amount of work that goes into it. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, but, but like a good, like a good book that re like, I, sometimes I say like, if a book re like the, the writing or the production should be like, you know, that's an uphill process. So the reading and the consuming of it can be a downhill process. So I think it's a, te a yeah. testament to people like yourself who put in all that effort, that uphill work, that it, that it listens in, 
it flows so well is a testament to how well you did it because that we can listen to it in a day or two days or three days and want more is a testament to how your skill as a reporter and a writer. And it's uh, it was truly a pleasure to hear you again to take on such a thing. I'm glad. I am glad to hear that. You know, it's one of those things that we finish, you know, I get very postpartum about long-term projects, yeah. but you know, when I'm done with them, I just kind of don't know what to do with myself afterwards. But, um, you know, I finished up burn wild and I was like, yeah, I think I'm done. I think I'm not going to do any podcasts anymore. And then, you know, of course I spend, you know, th around the holidays doing a lot of baking and listening to podcasts and, I listened to that great podcast, Bone Valley, which is just stunning. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a perfect podcast in my opinion. And I was just, was like, damn it. Now I got to make another podcast <laughs> because it's so good. It inspired me to like, you know, keep going with it. And, um, and I think that that's, you know, it, it, it you do see that podcasting can, can be really power. It's just really, really powerful way to deliver a story that people might not otherwise read. So um, I don't want to, I don't want to make light of that because it, it is a hard process, but it's like, it is very, um, when it works, it really works. It works on me. So. Yeah. And it's just the, I guess the real challenge in the end is like, you'd probably be more open to do it. If like, if you had like a steady, you know, if it, if it paid better or, you know, yeah. you know, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, that's it's simple. an asinine <laughs> thing to say, but it's one of those things where like, yeah, the, the drain of it be like, oh, it's okay. Like if I have a bad reporting day, I don't feel like I just like ate it. It's just, you yeah, know, I know I'm getting right. paid. You know, it would yeah. be rad. It would be rad to be like, I had a bad reporting day. I'm going to go on vacation. I'll come back refreshed. But it's like, no, you don't get that as a, as a freelance podcast producer. You just end up being tired <laughs> <laughs> and then being like, well, that's done. Better get on working on something I know. Else. Yeah. Would you, would you be seduced by some, like a, a staff position of some kind or, or are you like, yeah, or like addicted to the freedom? No, I mean, yeah, I, I always say, I mean, I may have made this analogy to you before, but it's like, I always say I'm like an outdoor cat. <laughs> like I just like, can't go in again. Yeah. Like I just have seen the outside. I, I, you know, um, and I do think that that's true to some, to some sense, you know, I think the journalism staff jobs are, are pretty, you know, uh, yeah. Like if somebody wanted to like dangle an attractive salary, but I had to like never be home because I had to be on a plane all the time or, or something like that. You know, I, I think that there's just a certain life benefits that I see that I get from freelancing that, that do feel good for me but yeah no i mean i can never say never like i think mm -hmm. if there was a staff job out there that fit my unique skill set then i certainly would have to consider it i mean i would like to maybe retire one day <laughs> <laughs> i know oh my god i mean on the track that i'm on that's that's not happening so which is fine good thing I'm, it's good that i'm obsessed with journalism i'll do it until i'm dead <laughs> Well, awesome, Leah. Well, this is always a pleasure. I, like I love whenever I see the Leah Satilli byline and hear your voice uh, coming through the the podcast airwaves. It, it always uh, brings a smile to my face, and I know I'm in, and oh, I yeah. know I'm in for a good ride. So I uh, just thank you so much for everything you do and and for your work and insights into freelancing and freelance journalism too. It's all so valuable. Well, thank you, Brendan. I really appreciate you, um, you know, being being like that because, as you know, it's like it it, it can feel lonely sometimes. So it, that means a lot. I appreciate it. Oh man, that was great. Leah's great. You're great. 
Thanks for listening and for making it this far. If you liked it, if you liked what you heard, go ahead and share it across your networks. Link up to the show on social. Spread it hand to hand. That's how this show has grown for nearly 10 years. That's how it's going to have to continue to grow. And always consider subscribing to my monthly newsletter for book recommendations, links to helpful, inspiring articles, and exclusive happy hour. It's how we rage against the algorithm. As you know, it does go from here, and it goes up to 11. First of the month, no spam. Can't beat it. So I was deciding whether or not I should riff on my book proposal journey as it stands. My agent sent it to an editor at HarperCollins last week, and the editor uh, is interested. He says, quote, I'm enjoying this, end quote, which is pretty amazing in and of itself. Uh, That said, it's not a green light. Far from it. Editor goes on to ask some central questions I failed to answer in a satisfactory way, and I hope what you glean from this is what you might have to do with your own book proposals. You know, pretty rare to get this kind of feedback, to even get this far in the process, if you ask me. And I want to share some of these insights. Now, there's a huge possibility of rejection here. Uh, I'm going to refrain from including the name of my subject, but the questions are relevant nevertheless. Okay, here we go. So this is the note from the editor. I would love to talk some things through with Brendan in a call. Most importantly, I want to better understand the new material he expects to uncover and how it will enhance, undermine, sustain the existing mythology. I'd like to get a clearer sense of the point of view that Brendan is bringing to this narrative. What does he think is misunderstood about the subject? How has the popular narrative failed? Why is this corrective needed to better understand his place in sports history? The anniversary is a great hook, but I think this book needs a larger sense of purpose. Why tell this story again, now? Also, I'd like to really understand his vision for putting his story onto a bigger canvas, a la Jane Levy. I agree he's a figure that can support that, but I think it needs to be handled with a certain finesse. Given how much has been written about the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, it feels easy for this to go sideways. But I think if done right, there is a way to marry this larger cultural context to the revisionist POV that Brendan is offering. So those are some great questions, right? I think you'll really want to consider those questions as you patch together your proposals and maybe save yourself months of agony and rewrites and frustrating the fucking pants off your agent for not being able to satisfactorily answer them. I have about five days or so to meditate on these questions and essentially draw up a PowerPoint, if you will, like kind of like going on Shark Tank. And I'm going to be sitting in front of Mark Cuban and company to pitch this book. Like That's what you're doing. You know, you're in front of essentially investors. You're asking for money and for publication and they want to return on that investment. Makes sense. Sure, it's art, but it's also a product in the same way a thermos is. You have to believe in it so hard, and you have to check off the boxes because of all that risk involved. Those questions, I think those are pretty standard like across the board. You know, they they might change a little bit, but I think those are pretty standard animating forces for certainly biography in the case of what I'm doing. You know, those are what an actual, real, live, breathing book editor at a major publisher wants to see answered. And I'd say if you can answer those questions, then 
you're you're in good shape. My meeting is Thursday, so I likely won't have an update come next week's pod, but you better believe I'll be fretting these next few days as I try to be assertive and speak with conviction. Otherwise, if you can do, interview. See ya. <laughs>